0: Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, would you grant us grace to hear directly from you the words of eternal life. We thank you for your word that is living and active, that is sharper than any two-edged sword. Cut us to the heart today, Lord. Lord, fill us, Lord, with your Spirit. Fill us to overflowing. And Lord, speak through me now that my words would be your words and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, maybe you're like me, and uh, the first words that you ever uh, learned to say about God or to God were some version of that simple little Uh, blessing before a meal that goes something like this. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. Some version of that. We've all probably said it countless times. God is great. God is good. But let's be honest with one another, shall we? Those same familiar words and the sentiment that is behind them, God is great, God is good, um, are at some point forsaken by all of us. We become distracted, all of us. It happens so easily, so quickly. Our trust fades. Our faith fades, our belief fades, especially when the going is tough. So even the best of us are susceptible to this. losing our trust in the fact that God is great, that God is good, even the great saints of the church. You read any biography of a saint, whether it be Mother Teresa or John Wesley or Charles Spurgeon or John Stott or Martin Luther King Jr., any of these folks you read, you'll find that at some point in their lives, there is that dark night of the soul. And here's an example from the Old Testament. If you read about the kings of Judah... Um, there's a long list of them, but one of the very best in the list is Hezekiah. In, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 2 and following, it says this, that Hezekiah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Now, David was technically Hezekiah's 11 greats' grandfather, But Hezekiah showed himself, like his uh, royal ancestor, uh, to be a man after God's own heart. Hezekiah was a a remarkable king, in that he was faithful, even though he hardly had a good role model in his father. His own father was Ahaz. Ahaz was perhaps the, the worst king of Judah, if you if you had to pick one. And Hezekiah faced adversity. He had tough times. And yet was still faithful. He he faced it as as king for his whole kingdom. His kingdom was under attack by a foreign nation, uh, Assyria. And he trusted in the Lord. He didn't lose faith in the Lord. And the Lord delivered Judah from the hands of the Assyrians. And Hezekiah had his own personal struggles. Hezekiah uh, put his trust in God even when he was so sick, he was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet that served in that court of Hezekiah reassured him of the Lord's faithfulness. And he prayed, King Hezekiah did. We read about it in 2 Kings 20, verse 3. We read his prayer. It says, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And it says that that Hezekiah wept bitterly before God. Even in the time of of bitter weeping, he still trusted in God and prayed to God. And God heard Hezekiah's prayer, and the king was healed. This man, it would seem, is the model believer. But when we get to chapter 39 of the book of Isaiah, the chapter that's actually right before our passage for today, we read that Hezekiah is actually just like the rest of us. He is, like all of us, he's easily distracted and he removes his trust in God and puts it elsewhere. He doesn't continue to trust in God's greatness and God's goodness. In Isaiah chapter 39, Hezekiah is visited by a group of envoys from another foreign nation, uh, the nation of Babylon, and he's mesmerized by the attention that they're showing him and he He's, uh, he's uh, uh, you know, loving the fact that he even gets a, a gift from the king of Babylon who had heard that, that Hezekiah had been so sick. And so Hezekiah gives the envoys uh, from Babylon a tour of his kingdom. And, and presumably as he's giving the tour, he's probably sharing stories and giving a bit of the history as, as tour guides often do. Um, but instead of telling them of the greatness and the goodness of God who was so instrumental in the story of Hezekiah's reign in Judah. What does Hezekiah do? He shows them his treasure house. He shows them his silver and his gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory. All that was found in his storehouse, as we read. So through this tour, Hezekiah is saying treasure is great, treasure is good, or or I am great, I am good because I have this treasure, rather than God is great, God is good. But upon hearing of Hezekiah's ill-placed trust in his stuff, the prophet Isaiah let him know that all these treasures in the storehouses would be lost. The treasure would be carried off to Babylon along with Hezekiah's own sons, indeed the whole nation of Judah would be carried off into exile in Babylon. And then, to top it all off, this great king, Hezekiah, in in the last verse of chapter 39, upon hearing the terrible news of judgment that would befall his nation, his kingdom of Judah, the hands of the Babylonians, even the terrible things that would happen to his own sons, Hezekiah says, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Basically, Hezekiah says, phew, you know, at least the exile won't happen while I'm alive, and it's on my watch. And so he and his nation, they would just live it up as they forsake the Lord and dump the consequences on their children. So even the model believer Loses sight of the glory of God. It's so easy. so easy to to lose that simple belief that God is great. God is good. And so we come to chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah. And I invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to open them up uh, to Isaiah, to the 40th chapter. And... As you move from 39 into 40, you actually transition into what many scholars refer to as the second book of Isaiah. And here we get the prophet's word to a people that are lost. They are under judgment. So we go a little bit from the the sort of forecast of exile to now they are a people uh, embroiled in exile. And I think you can boil this chapter, chapter 40, down to this. God is great, God is good. That's how he kicks off this whole book. And for a distractible and forgetful people like we are and like the nation of Judah was, we need those words to return to our lips. Again and again, those same words we used to pray as a kid. God is great, God is good. So what do we mean by that? What do we mean by God's greatness or his goodness? Well, I would say that these things are inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. His greatness and his goodness are are together. His majesty and his might, his greatness is seen in his goodness. That is his grace and his love. And his grace and love are the most exquisite expressions of his glory and greatness. And we see all of this conveyed in chapter 40 through God's pardon, his pursuit, his power, and his pastoral care. So the prophet begins verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, or you could translate that word as hardship, that this terrible uh, state that has befallen her, Is ended. And there's comfort. But there's comfort not because the the people of Judah have somehow worked it out, you know, kind of worked out all their problems or or have learned their lesson or have somehow expressed proper amounts of contrition. That's not why the hardship is ending. No, this is a word of comfort from God to his people and it is based upon his willingness to pardon to pardon their iniquity to be clear god is great in his judgment verse 2 judah has received double for all her sins we read and that means the full measure uh, like the, the comprehensive amount of judgment for her sins it is a bitter albeit deserved, thing for them to be in exile. You can just read about it in, in something like Psalm 137. But God brings comfort. He brings comfort to those weeping children of his on the shores of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. He brings comfort, not abstractly, but particularly through his pardon. God is great. And he is seen to be great and good in his mercy, his pardon. And he doesn't act passively and and reactionally, but he does this forcefully through his pursuit of his people. Verses 3 to 5 speak not of the people kind of needing to get packed up and, and ready to go after God, but we read of a way being prepared for the Lord to come to them. This pardon, the the comfort of the Lord will come to them and nothing will hinder his pursuit. He will come on a straight highway with no valleys or mountains or uneven ground or rough places or any kind of hindrance. Nothing will slow down the pursuit of the Lord coming to bring pardon and an end to all the hardship. And of course, this is how it must be. God alone is the one who is great and good enough to accomplish that which his people need. They they can't comfort themselves. They can just weep bitterly as they try to sing the songs on the shores of the rivers, the waters of Babylon. They can show off perhaps all the treasure that they want to in their houses, but the the truth is that there is no power in them. There's no true power in mankind. No ultimate power in mankind. It's that truth that that Thomas Cranmer makes so clear in his second collect in the season of Lent, that, that prayer that begins, Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. No power. Verses 6 and following, it says it right here. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. It's a, a way of saying he's God and we are not. It's another way of saying what the Lord says to Hezekiah through the prophet in the previous chapter, chapter 39, verse 6, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. It will fade, it will wither, it will disappear. We and all the stuff we store up, it will just pass away like the grass of the field. But we can be comforted. Why? Because of the Lord's pardon that comes through His pursuit. And He can do this because He is powerful. Verse 8 The word of our God will stand forever. Verse 9 Behold, your God, behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Put simply, God is great. And he is also, oh so good. For this great and and powerful God who comes screaming out of heaven on a highway, pursuing his people and bringing pardon, does so as a pastor his flock. He doesn't just speak tenderly to Jerusalem. He is tender. He shows pastoral care. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God is great. God is good. Are these words still on our lips? So as we began the season of Advent last Sunday in his sermon, Patrick gave us an important reminder that this season is a time of uh, of waiting We recognize this calling that we have to wait upon the Lord as a people who remember God's faithfulness and who repent of our forgetfulness, our sin, but most importantly are reassured that we are God's possession. We are his beloved children. This sermon isn't the exact same sermon, but do you hear how it rhymes? Is another message of reassurance, is it not? Maybe this is something we need to hear? What do you think? You. I know, uh, especially in a season like the one we're all facing in 2020, that it's hard to remember. We're so buried, it's, it's, it's hard to repent, and, and, and we lack assurance so readily. Um, it's hard to, to remember. It's hard maybe just to even believe at all that God is great and God is good. It's so easy to fall into the same temptation that captured even the likes of, of King Hezekiah. Any one of us can fall into a dark night of the soul. And, and maybe, maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe God's great, but but life is too hard to believe he's good. Or maybe God's good, but looking around at all this hardship, he must not be great. And so we have Advent. And even though we might not feel like it, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And we look to Jesus. We turn to Jesus rather than our fleeting hope in whatever it is that we've stored in our treasure houses. Or to our unrelenting despair in the judgment, and the hardship that we face. We look to Jesus, our Emmanuel, God, with us and in him we see all the fullness of of god's uh, uh, pardon and pursuit and, and power and pastoral care comfort comfort my people says your god and he says it through the word made flesh his son jesus christ our Emmanuel. Go going up to a high mountain O Zion, herald of of good news, lift up your voice with strength O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God who's come to you. We can... Shout it from the mountaintops, so or we can just keep repeating it, returning to our childlike faith, and simply saying, God is great, God is good. Amen.